0: So the talk this morning is a little bit of a departure from the kind of talks that I've generally given here, and it was occasioned by being invited by the journal uh, Tricycle, whom some of you some of you read Tricycle, I'm sure, to write a an essay for their fall issue, which will be coming out in. Um, September, on Buddhism and politics in time for the election. And they invited me to write the lead article. So I th- thought that uh, it would be very good to use the energy of this group and the wisdom of this group. And I know the, the interest in that theme that uh, Sylvia has communicated a lot. It's been a core interest of hers for a long time, as as you know, and I know it comes up sometimes in the group, to use the energy of the group to um, give the impetus for giving a talk which would be related to the writing. And so I, I entitled the talk, Present Moment, Urgent Moment. Buddhist practice and the current political situation. And I want to give, eventually give five guidelines for approaching the situation from the standpoint of our practice, which I think is challenging. I don't know if it's more challenging than being caught in a traffic jam. But it's very challenging, as we know. I mean, what a traffic jam brings up is that when there's tension or stress or something happens, it's sometimes hard to remember our practice, hard to come back to our practice. And I think the political situation brings that up in a lot of different ways. And so that's... I want to explore that theme. And I want to first really talk about the... Current situation and the challenges, and the some of the difficulties and confusions of connecting Buddhist practice to the current political situation, and then I want to give those uh, these five guidelines. So I think when we look to the current situation it may not be very hard to see that this country and this culture are in a very uh, pivotal moment and that the, that the fall elections um, seem to carry quite a lot of urgency with them. And you know, depending on how you interpret what's happening or how much attention you pay, um, for many people, the election of George Bush to a second term might signify a kind of a crossing of a line that would bring about the potential for significantly more damage. This may or may not be your interpretation. It's my, my own reading that, that the election would tend to cross, would seem to cross a certain line and that there'd be a very good chance of major damage and deterioration related to the country, the culture, the society, in a number of different areas. There'd be the prospect of um, perpetual war you know, and further militarism in the culture that would be needed to sustain and expand um, empire. Very likely, uh, further episodes of terrorism within the society, very, very likely. Which, of course, as we know, we can maybe look at uh, what's happening in Israel as a possible prototype. It leads to growing fear being in the culture with cycles of reaction. Very, very possible, even likely. Linked with that, a a reduction of civil liberties in the name of security. Uh, Liberties that are often very hard to bring back once they're revoked very likely the continued decline of democracy the power of the Congress being almost given over more and more to the executive branch linked with enhanced corporate control working closely with the executive branch further gap between rich and poor worsening state and local budgets and deepened vulnerability to uh, economic crisis and decline. Not to mention the continued ecological, what I would call irresponsibility, and blindness with some ecosystems brought closer, if not beyond, repair. And perhaps more ominously the further decline in, in many quarters, at least publicly, of moral and sp- spiritual values. We could say very grave danger to the soul of the country as evidenced by routine lying in public places. Propaganda tied to the mass media along with what seems to be increases in self-centeredness and hedonism, lack of critical thinking among large portions of the population. You know, and I I noticed uh, some of you may have seen, this is kind of evident, some of you may have seen in the uh, Chronicle on May 1st, I noticed on, uh, some of you, you, any any of you look at that section called News of the Planet, which is uh, like at the, This was on page D12. A small little clipping on D12 said, uh, it's possible that the Ganges River may not exist in 40 years, according to certain studies. Reported on page D12. While on the front page, the same day, there was news of Laughing Sal's new home at the beach on the Santa Cruz boardwalk. So again... um, some people think, in fact, that the line has already been crossed, that the line, that these very dangerous lines have already been crossed, and some people question even whether the election would make much difference, whether even whether someone like John Kerry would reverse a lot of the uh, very dangerous signs in the areas that I mentioned, or whether the energy, the creative energy... ...needed to address the situation could really be mobilized by that campaign. Those are are important questions. And so the question would be... ...what is the responsibility of those who come from Buddhist practice to address that situation? Of course, not everyone would necessarily agree with the sense of urgency of the situation. And there also could be quite a lot of confusion about whether people doing spiritual practice should even pay attention to any of this. You know, uh, certainly a legitimate question could be raised. I remember a few conversations I've had. Uh, One conversation I had in the early 1990s when I was um, staying at a um, monastery in Thailand. And I had just come from about two weeks with a group called the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which were people who were active in the world, not so much, you know, people who were just about to be married, which is how my my brother always jokes me about, when are the engaged Buddhists really going to get married? Anyway, we had had these wonderful weeks, incredible weeks, you know, two weeks living together, people from probably 50 different nationalities living very simply out in the rural Thai uh, countryside and just very stirring to feel the connections across nationalities and I was very inspired. And then I wanted to have some time in a monastery, so I went up to the monastery that is uh, guided by Chan Mahabua. some of you may know his, his work, um one of the great teachers, the teacher who's profiled in, in uh, Jack's book, on which used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, and I think, what's it called now? Just, well, a lot of them died, so they I had to retitle the book. <laughs> <laughs> Living yeah. Dharma, I think. Living Dharma. Living Dharma. So, so. Anyway, it's, if you see that book, you'll see a profile of Chan Mahabhu, and I talked with the person who was actually the senior monk senior Western monk living in Thailand, a monk named Pottawato. Very, you know, he was in his 60s. I think he'd been a monk for 35 years in Thailand at that point. And I was sort of fresh from this gathering with all these people. And, I, and he's, he, he said, you know, um, I think the real work is just to uproot the kalesas, the defilements in oneself. And it's nice if you want to make the world a little bit better, but that's not, really our, that's not really what we're about. You know. What we're about is uh, uprooting the defilements, and you really actually, I don't think you can do it very well outside of a monastery. If you're really interested in the spiritual path, you should be a monk or nun. And the real work is individual, it's uprooting one's defilements, and you can't really do it in the world. And I sort of said, hmm. You know, and it was, I, I saw it actually as a challenge. It was a challenge of, are people who live in the world, first of all, do they have, can they have a really deep spiritual practice or are we just fooling ourselves and playing around, you know? And the second question would be, can there be a legitimate path of practice that's, as it were, active in the world? And I, I think those questions are, are somewhat up for grabs. I think his, his points are legitimate questions. And I remember another discussion I had quite, <clears throat> quite a long time ago. It was in 1980, and I was at um, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, and a great Zen teacher came through named uh, Master Kusan from Korea, who is, uh, I I think he's not alive now, but he was uh, the abbot of one of the uh, great uh, practice monasteries in Korea. It's actually the one, if you know Stephen Batchelor's work. It was the one that he and his wife Martine Bachelor were at, and he writes it up in some of his books. For example, The Faith to Doubt, he talks about that, the practice they do there. And I talked with him, and I somewhat naively asked him a question, because very much in the news had been reports of incredible turmoil in Korea. And just a little bit before that, there had been a horrible massacre of students and Labor leaders, uh, up to 2,000 people had been massacred by the army. And I somewhat naively asked him, How does your Brutus practice help you to deal with the situation? And the answer came through a translator. And so one has to uh, suspect a little bit. But the answer that I got was, That's politics. We do religion. The two are different, the two are separate. And again, not exactly what I was looking for. You know, well, we, you know, we we do equanimity practice, and we, you know, loving kindness practice. We try not to create enemies. That's kind of what I was looking for, but I got instead the sense of separation. Now we know, however, that there are any number of voices who take the opposite position. That one can have both a deep spiritual practice and be involved in the world. And you know, probably the foremost among them would be people like Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, Joanna Macy, uh, Robert Aitken, Roshi, a number of different people who have tried to articulate the notion of being engaged and doing practice. This is, this is what Thich Nhat Hanh wrote about the work that they did in Vietnam during the 50s and 60s. When I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries, or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? In other words, should we be spiritual, or should we be sort of social and responsive to the situation? After careful reflection, we decided to do both, to go out and help people, and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. But even if we are somewhat convinced by that um, call for integration for call for doing both. It's still not very easy to know what to do. You know, we, find, we look in the teachings of the Buddha and we don't find very many guidelines for action in the world because most of the teachings were directed to monks and nuns. We have certain things that are very helpful, but we don't certainly don't have anything very detailed. We also know that in many ways the... The world of our times is incredibly different from the world of 2,500 years ago in terms of its complexity, in terms of the issues that we're facing, and so forth. It's not very easy to know if I want to come from my Buddhist practice, how do I do so? You know, How do I, how do I uh, act in the world? How do I participate in settings where people often don't care about Buddhist practice or don't care about spiritual practice? You know, and how do I relate to um, you know these so-called progressive social political activists? They seem to often point out the problems very well, but don't aren't they overly angry and dogmatic and attached to their views and self-righteous and dogmatic and even sometimes they're violent? And what do I do? Who do I connect with? Who do I act with? You know, who do I? Who's my community? I mean, these are, these are all uh, major questions if you want to actually act in the world. How do I move into these realms where a lot of the action, a lot of the assumptions are very different from the ones that I have myself? Um, I think these are somewhat the koans of our practice. And I'm not going to give uh, sort of ready, easy answers to those questions because I don't think we have them. But I think we have, we have koans. I think we have um, invitations to uh, respond to the situation. And the way I want to try to help uh, clarify things some is to give uh, guidelines that I find very helpful for myself to actually respond to the situation that I think really help us uh, move out into the world and, and really address, I think, the urgency of the situation. And so I think I'll name, though, these five guidelines so you have a sense of where I'm going, and then I'll go over each of them. So the first one is, take your response to the current crisis as part of your practice. Take your response to the current crisis as part of your practice, as part of your commitment to transform suffering and to work for freedom which is the heart of our practice. So it's take your response to the current crisis as part of your practice. Secondly, learn to see social and political phenomena through dharma eyes, through the eyes of your practice. Learn to see social and political phenomena through dharma eyes. Third is come to see your day-to-day action in the world as guided by the principles and practices of an emerging path of being active in the world. In other words, there is a kind of a spiritual path which I think is being called from us to help develop creatively. It reminds me of this book that uh, Apollo Ferrari co-wrote with Miles Horton called We Make the Path That We Are Walking. I think it's something like that, that there's a path which is being called forth of how we take our action as a deep Practice. And fourthly, know that there is a wide range of interconnected work to do and see how you personally are called most to respond. In other words, everyone doesn't have to do everything. Everyone doesn't have to be on the front lines. There's a wide, very wide range of work, and we have to see where we're called, what our passion is. And lastly, prepare for the long haul. <laughs> prepare for the long haul as well as for immediate insight and change. Prepare for the long haul as well as immediate insight and change. So those are my five guidelines that I want to explore. And when you think about them, they're actually the guidelines of our individual practice as well, when you actually consider them. So let me go over those, and then we'll have some some time to talk together. The first is, take your response to the current crisis as part of your practice, as part of your commitment to transform suffering, to work for freedom. And so for me, I come back to that idea that our practice is about transforming suffering. It's about transforming our own individual suffering. And it's guided, one way of understanding is it, it's guided by this very powerful teaching which I love so much, which I've mentioned a few times, that the Buddha gave, which is the teaching of the two arrows. Do you remember that? I've mentioned that a few times. The teaching of the two arrows is that, that everyone who lives is shot by an arrow, and that's the arrow of pain, that we all have a certain amount of pain in our lives. We have also beauty and joy and happiness and pleasant experiences and California weather and, you know... Um, what? Roses. Roses, spirit rock, you know, organic farmer market food, a lot of pleasant, but we also are shot by this arrow, which means we have a certain amount of pain that we all have. It's the pain of illness or grief or dying or, I don't know if this is relevant for you, but I was thinking about it for a national audience. If you're a like if you're a Chicago Cubs or Boston Red Sox fan, there's just a deep amount of pain that just comes with certain parts of the world or interests. Uh, you know, who are, who are also, and again, it's, it's, it's always wonderful to remember that, as Gil Fronsdale pointed out once, uh, the Buddha had a bad back in his old age. That's the first arrow. Liberation doesn't get rid of the first arrow. Everyone has that. More, you know, We all have more or less. But the Buddha said the real place of practice is to not shoot ourselves or shoot other people with a second arrow because of the first arrow. In other words, because we have pain or because we have frustration, because we're caught in a traffic jam, because we live in Boston and like baseball, it doesn't mean that we shoot a second arrow, which is essentially to be reactive about the first arrow. And I think we know that one way to look at our practice is to see that it's about seeing our ways of being reactive and transforming our patterns of reactivity, so that when something difficult happens to us, we watch the tendencies to blame ourselves, to blame others, to be reactive in all sorts of ways. And we watch this in terms of grosser actions, and we watch this in terms of the subtlest movements of the mind. We watch how when there's a slight knee pain, we watch how the mind moves in certain ways. We see how we're reactive. And so that, for me, is a very powerful way to understand our practice. It's, some, it's, a, it's a way of understanding our practice, which is very easy to see how that's also the core of our practice when we move out from individual practice. That it's not very hard to see that this would be the core of practicing in our relationships, right? That one of the basic ways that we practice in relationships is to be very careful about our reactivity with our partners, with our family and our communities, when something difficult happens, something happens we don't like, how do we work with that? How do we study and transform the patterns of our reactivity? And what's interesting for me is that this is no other than how we work in terms of larger social responses as well. And one way that we can interpret, for example, the work of Gandhi and King is to see it as exactly a response to pain and oppression which refuses reactivity, the reactivity of hatred and violence fueled by hatred and sometimes anger, that it's to really say the cycles of violence, the cycles of reactivity end here. That's what our practice is about. And it's not hard to see that so many of the problems of the world are about these endless cycles of reactivity and violence. You know, and many of you remember the quote from the uh, Dhammapada by the Buddha that, what was it, that violence never ends through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law. And the words could have been taken out of the mouths of Gandhi or King, that this is really a way to to look at our practice. And it's a way to say that in some ways the practice I'm doing for myself is the same kind of of practice, the same principles that I work with in the world. And what's beautiful about that for me is that we start to have, when we do our individual practice, we have a laboratory. We study reactivity. We study how to break the cycles of reactivity and even we want to call it violence, so that when we know it really well in ourselves, we can be much more skilled in bringing those principles into play, so to speak, in our families, our relationships, and in our organizations, our communities, our our world. Because the dynamics, I think, are exactly the same. We stop those cycles, those vicious cycles, if we want to call it that. Another way to think to remind ourselves that it's really part of our responsibility to respond to the crisis, if we, if we could think of this connection between individual and practice in the world, is to think about the ethical precepts. Because the ethical precepts are really fundamental for reminding us that our responsibility is not just with our, ourselves. And even in the teachings of the Buddha, there is a very clear social dimension to the ethical precepts. In the Sutta Nipata, this is what the Buddha says about the first precept. The first precept is about non-harming. He says, Let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, nor approve of others' killing. That's social, you see. That's talking both about the individual and the collective. He talks about the second precept about not taking that which is not given in this way. Let one not destroy life. I'm sorry, no. Let let one not cause to steal nor approve of others stealing. And so the precepts, if we want to live by the ethical precepts, we are invited to consider our participation in a wider world. And some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh and Robert Aitken and others have articulated the precepts in very powerful ways, very challenging ways that invite us to see our moral responsibility in part is to address the larger issues. This is how Thich Nhat Hanh expressed the first precept. Do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and to prevent war. In terms of the second precept, he said, Possess nothing that should belong to others. Prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. It's a challenge, isn't it? How do we live that precept? But I think it's clear that we're invited to consider that we have moral responsibility for the state of our communities and the state of the world. And for some of us, it's helpful to think back to other periods and say, if we want to think about responsibility, what would I do if I was, let's say, a white person living in Mississippi in 1955? Would I think that I have any moral responsibility for the situation? What would I do if I was in apartheid South Africa? What would I do if I was in Germany in 1931? Would I see myself as having moral responsibility? Sometimes those thought experiments can be helpful for uh, enlivening the sense of responsibility. So that's the first point, that is to take our response to the current crisis as part of our practice. The second is to learn to see the world and social and political phenomena through dharma eyes. And I think we begin to do this when we think about that principle of reactivity and the two arrows, and we start to... and this, Again, it's not very hard when we look to the Middle East, right, and we see the tit-for-tat of the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? It's not very hard to see that cycle of violence, even if there are certain good points, as it were, and bad points on either side. But I think that to really respond to the situation, we need to bring our own vision, our own Dharma eyes to the situation, to bring that quality of attention which we have in relation to our own experience. In our own experience, we see those patterns of reactivity very, very carefully. We see the way that we, that we blame, that we judge, that we um, somaticize certain difficulties, the way that we act out things. We see our beauty and wonderful qualities as well, but uh, definitely in mindfulness practice, we see our difficult qualities. And so uh, somehow we need to be able to see the complexities of the world in a Dharma perspective because I think sometimes we just look at the world and it's overwhelming, isn't it? And we look at it and say, how can I understand this? This is just too much for me. You know, and I have so many friends who don't even want to read the newspaper. And many of us may be like that right now or at periods, you know, for periods of time. And I think that it's helpful to, with Dharma eyes, looking at the newspapers in a way, I hate to say this, but it's like looking at our own minds. Not at their best, maybe. But there's, some, there's something that's parallel there. And if we see it like that and put it in a Dharma perspective, I think it's one of the ways that things are quite, not quite so hard, not quite so overwhelming. So we could begin to see, for example the different kind of conflicts in the world as conflicts that are a lot about this being caught in this vicious cycle. Whether it's the war on terror or Osama bin Laden, the same thing's happening. In some ways, it comes out of an inability to open up to what's painful. That's what reactivity is. It's an inability really to open up to what's painful. So one of the most valuable responses to any situation is to find ways to open up to what's painful, which most situations, they're just stuck and you can't even do it, right? That's why you have these incredible breakthroughs when people from different sides get together at a peace conference and they just talk about their families and they have enough warmth towards the other side, so to speak, so that that, uh, after a certain while, they can actually hear a little bit of the other side's pain. You may remember Thich Han said the role of a peacemaker is to bring the story of the pain of one side to the other side and vice versa. That's what a peacemaker does and many of us may be called to be peacemakers. But when we have those eyes of Dharma we can start to see that a lot of these situations are about the inability within a given system to open up to pain or suffering in a constructive way. And then what happens when you don't do that? What happens to us when we don't do that? when we have some stuffed pain, what happens? We just act out, don't we? You can see the newspapers as the report of the latest acting out of the last 24 hours. Maybe you don't read them as much. Maybe you say, okay, I kind of know what's happening. I don't need to get all the details if they tend to bombard me too much. So we can start to see these these patterns of what the Buddha called greed, hatred, and delusion working in the world, we can see how so much of the economic structure and so much of the society really, in a way, um, makes greed stronger. I think we know that. Greed and self-centeredness stronger. We can see how these tendencies get crystallized in institutions We can see how institutions represent a kind of crystallized pattern of greed, just the same way that we can study that in ourselves. Or we can look at the dimensions of what we might call delusion, and we can see there's a tremendous amount of collective delusion in the society. It's very intense, and it's very very powerful. The ways that um, the mass media work, and in some ways the educational institutions, or... The different ideologies represent a great deal of delusion. Who are the ways that we... um, The way that we stuff what we could call our collective shadow material. And again, I'm not trying... I'm sensitive to the way that this is not always easy to hear, but there's a tremendous amount of collective shadow material in our society. You know, there's the way that we haven't really come to grips with a lot of fundamental realities, whether it's the near genocide of the native peoples or slavery... There's a kind of denial, a horror of the fact that our foreign policy has probably killed 12 million people in the last 30, 40, 50 years. There's a denial about that, which which is not hard to see. We don't want to look at certain things. And so when we uh, see through the Dharma eyes, we see that stuff. We see that stuff more clearly. And we also see, I would say, the positive resources within the society. Because so far I've mostly focused on the difficult aspects of the negative, but we also see the um, high degrees of openness of information in the society. We see a certain freedom of information that is a great resource. We see the wonderful legacies of the American Revolution and the, the traditions of freedom. We see the traditions of the many movements for reform and change. We see the, the power and the beauty of the land, the resources of uh, Native traditions or even a lot of our great gifts are from the people we've most oppressed, from the African-Americans, and the Native Americans. Rock and roll music comes right out of African culture, as many of you know. I mean, it's, when you look deeply, it's very interesting what you see. And we also have um, tremendous moral virtues in our society. Hard work, strong traditions of open speech, of plain speech, of telling the truth. You know, of community, of democracy, of care. So these are tremendous resources. So somehow we need to be able to see the society clearly if we're going to intervene clearly. So the third, I'm going to have to go through these last three a little bit quickly because I'm realizing they're all. They all. Um, a lot could be said about each of them. So the third one is, which I think I've already suggested in many ways, see your day-to-day actions in the world as guided by the principles and practices of an emerging path of practice. And I think this is where people need to come together in community. As I know, uh, we've done this with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We've formed um, groups called base groups, which bring people together to work with these issues on an ongoing basis. But I think, and this is what the spirit of that um, day called Spirited Action was about, to bring people together to really... uh, Sangha is crucial for this work. For me, if you want to be active in the world, and my talk is really, I should be obvious, my talk is for those of you who want to be active in the world. And for others, um, a lot of things are relevant for individual practice as well, or maybe it's just not the time. So community is very crucial. Um, getting different guidelines, seeing the core principles of how do you develop mindfulness when you 're out in the world? How do you develop equanimity? How do you develop um, How do you develop a sense of not taking sides? There are whole sets of um, core principles, some of which you can find in Thich Nhat Han's work, and I know in the work that Diana Winston and I do we, we work the core of our teaching is to work with ten core principles of uh, that can that can guide us there's There are also a few aspects of practice which I think are very crucial. One of them is something I learned a lot from Joanna Macy, which is that in doing this work, and maybe you can feel it right now, there's a lot of sadness and grief and even a sense of overwhelm from looking at the society. And many of you, again, many of you might actually feel that right now. And one of the practices which Joanna developed is a practice called despair and empowerment work, which give practices for actually going into the sadness, the grief that we feel in relation to the world. And I know from having um, done this a lot of times and taught it often, that it's very, it's very powerful that these are, some of you know, these are practices which I think I've talked about once or twice that one does with a group where one invites the, usually as the first part of a day, one invites the difficult emotions that are there to be present. You know, I, I, did, I did a day-long retreat here with Diana Winston the weekend before the invasion of Iraq. We had about 50 people. And we, in the middle of the day, we did a two-hour ritual which invited people to be present to the sadness. We, it was done in a very interesting way, which I won't go into detail. Maybe in the questions I could talk about it. But it was done with, in a, very, with a very safe container that made it possible for people go in, to go into their sadness, their anger, their confusion, their numbness. And my experiences doing those, and I also I had my original training with Joanna as part of a training group. It happened to be the first two weekends of the Gulf War. And we did this work over two weekends. And what I saw was that basically that we all carry around tremendous amount of stuff that we hardly even know it's there. What, when we don't deal with it, we tend to withdraw and feel somewhat paralyzed and numb. And that doing this kind of work is a way of working through it. I was amazed to see when working with a group of people, and I did this several, I did it also after, after the invasion as well, and I've done it other times, just to see how much we carry around and to see how we don't have the places to, to really work with it, just in the same way that often, with, think of how you would deal with your own personal pain If you didn't have meditation and therapy, you were very good friends. If it just was bottled up. That's more or less the the situation. So we need to do these practices. And they're an important part of this path, too, really. And it's one of the ways that, for me, when I asked myself, how can I most contribute to the situation now, I thought that that's really important to offer um, some of those opportunities. Because people, you know, people after the invasion, just so many people felt paralyzed, confused, depressed, discouraged. And those are strong emotions, but you can work through them just like you can individually. And so that brings me to the fourth and the fifth point, which is the fourth one is, know that there is a wide range of interconnected work to do. And this is really crucial, that in teaching retreats on socially engaged Buddhism, with, uh, mostly with Diana Winston, we found that even people who were very active felt like they weren't doing enough, they felt guilty. And in large part, people kind of feel, oh, I have to be on the front lines, I have to be addressing suffering, and I don't want to do that, and therefore I can't do anything, and what should I do? And there's a tremendous sense of discouragement. And I'm guided by something that Joanna Macy said, which she said that in terms of transformation, there are a number of different aspects that really contribute to transformation. The first is, responding to the immediate difficulties of the time and trying to prevent further destruction. A lot of what we call activism looks like that, and that's important for some people to do. She said there were two other main areas. The second was help create alternative institutions, (coughs) help do things a different way. This could mean um, putting enormous energy into your child's preschool, developing a kind of education that works with different principles. And she said, that's just as important for responding to the world. And the third is helping to change people's moment-to-moment perception. That could be teaching yoga. Now, what I found and what I drew from what she said very—it was very important were two things. First of all, we each need to find where we're drawn to respond. and We don't have to do everything. We have to ask deeply in ourselves what contribution of mine could really help address the crisis? And it doesn't need to be being on the front lines or being calling yourself an activist. But one needs to do one of those, broadly, one of those three areas of, of activity. And the other thing that really occurred to me was that we need to see that these areas are connected with each other. It's the sense of isolation and disconnection that's particularly disempowering. And this is, again, about community. It's about having a broad vision and saying, if I can do something which helps in some way, in a deep way, to stop shooting that second arrow, whether it's at the personal level, the level of families, relationships, and, uh, or whether it's at the larger level, and if I can do that and really see my work as connected with people doing other things, and where am I most drawn, where are my gifts, where am my vocation, I think that's what we're at really asked to do. We're really called to do that. And so let me, let me finish with the fifth point, which is that we need, I think, also to prepare for the long haul as well as immediate insight and transformation. When I addressed some of those underlying issues, you may have got the sense that it wasn't... Not all of this is going to change with the election, right? These are, we, and it's, it's kind of like ourselves, right? We have to be prepared for the long haul with our own minds. I hope you've noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) That meditation is not your do a weekend seminar and you solve everything. You know, Um, would that it were, but it's not. And in some ways we have to really be like there's a wonderful statement that... uh, a second-century rabbi made named Rabbi Tarfan. He said, It's not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. It's not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. So I think we need to ask ourselves, what kind of qualities help me for the long haul? Some of them are, are very well developed being in traffic jams. Patience, equanimity, humor mindfulness <laughs> I, i'm i'm joking a little bit but we have they, these are very important qualities you know think of the people you know who have a sense of the long haul you know I, one of the people i think about is a man named miles horton who uh, wrote a beautiful autobiography it's actually called the long haul he lived in tennessee and was the founder of the highlander school so I think the earth and the animals have a sense of the long haul. (laughs) And he started this center in 1932 that was one of the main places for um, social change. It was the place where Rosa Parks went. It was one of the few places in the South where blacks and whites could actually be together until the 1960s. Rosa Parks went there, Martin Luther King went there. It was so successful that the state of Tennessee shut it down in 1960. (laughs) And this guy, Miles Horton, was like this wily fox. You know. I never met him, but I saw a lot of videotapes of him because I visited Highlander a number of times. The state of Tennessee closed it down. About a month later, arsonists burned the school to the ground. Right? Within three months, he had started it somewhere else, and it's still going strong. And it went on. It was, and he just was like this wily coyote figure. Which, okay, you're going to burn it down. I think I have a response to that. That's long-haul mind. <laughs> and how do, we, how do we develop that? So I think we need to work for the long haul, and that's about having community, it's about having these personal qualities. And at the same time that we're working for the long haul, we need to be available for the possibility of very rapid change. Because things sometimes happen very quickly. You know, who would have thought that the Soviet Union would have collapsed so quickly? Or that South Africa would have changed like it would. You know, if we're interested in transformation, we know in ourselves that sometimes things happen very quickly. And I think that um, we should be open to that possibility. We should be open to the possibility of some very good things happening. But also, pack for the long haul, bring a change of clothes, and a sack lunch. (laughs) So thank you. Please, yeah. To yeah. Participate. Yeah. It's a good question, and and I, I, how many people feel some sense of overwhelm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because I, I can, I could feel a little bit when I was talking. I, I realized that I was partly almost like taking you a bit into that, right? Mm-hmm. Which, and I would be my responsibility to not leave you there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> As best I could, but to move through that. But uh, that that takes me f- a few things in response. It takes me back to the importance of what I was calling the despair and empowerment work that Joanna Macy does. But I think we have to we have to. Um, they're very strong feelings, and and they they tend to immobilize us. And uh, and so that's the first thing. So may, I don't know. Maybe you can encourage me or others to offer. They're very simple uh, practices, just like meditation is very simple. But it's really possible to uh, work through that sense of overwhelm, because I think that's part—that's like an occupational hazard for anyone who wants to respond. So maybe we, maybe I just need to, and others need to get a regular series of things going, because it's. I think for I can't imagine being really deeply engaged, because we're talking about how do you deal with overwhelm burnout and these sorts of things, you know, like Diana Winston and I did a, a day-long in February on uh, called, is more or less called Healing the Healers and Caregivers, and that's what we came up against continually. We, a lot of it was about how do you work with these states of burnout and overwhelm. So that's the first thing, is I think that kind of small community working with the, with the sense of overwhelm is really crucial. And you can, I, th- I think there may be some other ways to do it as well, but that's a primary way. And then um, I think the deepest question is really about your own vocation. And what and I'll, I'll talk about the deepest question and then how do you, maybe how do you get there. The deepest question is how do I feel myself most sort of passionately alive in doing what my gifts call for. That's a, that's a deep, lifelong pursuit to, f- to move towards that, let's say. That's, I think, part of the response. On the way to that, I think it's really to feel, maybe it's to get a sense of a lot of options. So, for example, the the uh, gathering that, how many people went to the Spirited Action meeting in Berkeley that Sylvia was at? How many people went there? Okay. Um, a few of us, yeah. They have a website, which would be very good to look at, and they listed like four major ways to get involved with the election. And there were people there who talked about helping with voter registration, with voter monitoring, the whole thing with touchscreens and all that. There's some very concrete ways to get involved, letter writing uh, and so forth. So that was, there were very, very concrete ways there. And there's, um, let's see, there's a book that um, I think I have it in my pack that the group Move On, Move On did that lists a lot of ways to get active. So I'll, I'll finish just in a, maybe, uh, there are a lot of questions. Why don't we take one question, then finish on time, and anyone who wants to stay further can do that. Mm-hmm. Please. Um, please. I, yeah. I'm yeah. I, I have the book here. It has about 50 ideas, I think. I mean, I think the one main ones mentioned in the Spirited Action Gathering were house parties, uh, you can show films, gather people together, form a small group where you discuss these things together. There are a lot of things one can do. But I, I also want to encourage the connection of this with one's practice because I think in many ways there, there are both the external actions. The heart of the response to the current situation is to do one's practice. It's, there, there's a way that when someone is nasty to you or sarcastic to you and you check your response and you're not just sarcastic and nasty right back, but you actually work with the way that you might tend to be reactive, you're working with the same dynamics that lead to war. In a way, when you are mindful and responsive in that way, in your own experience, you are stopping the war. And that's, uh, there's that continuum. And so when we do our own practice, I think, more and more, and then just look outwardly and try to see, again, through those Dharma eyes, I think we'll know what to do. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh said when you're mindful you'll know what to do when you're deeply mindful so what i'll do is i'll i'll finish with a dedication of merit and i'm open to staying a little longer and talking with anyone who wants to stay but we'll finish for those who have to leave right now and thank you for thank you for giving space this isn't an easy topic it's sometimes nicer to talk about joy and you know All this, but I think this is this is important in our times, and I thank you for letting me have space for exploring it. So, being present, being with our bodies, our hearts, being with whatever has come up that seems most helpful. And looking into whether there are any intentions which come from this morning that you want to act on. And so we close by knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for all beings. We dedicate the fruits of the morning to the healing and the transformation of all beings as we go out into the world. Thank you.